All right, if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in Joshua chapters 11 and 12 this morning. If you would, please stand while I read a portion of our text. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the, the Anakim from the hill country, from the, from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none left of the Anakim in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. This is God's word. Please be seated. So in our passage, we're coming to uh, somewhat of a midpoint in the book of Joshua. Up until this point, it has been conquest after conquest to gain this promised land, promised back in the days of Abraham, promised to the Israelite people, but this land is occupied by the Canaanites. And in in our passage, this conquest comes to an end. We see them get this promised land. That's what most of chapter 11 is about. And then chapter 12 kind of zooms out and looks at this whole conquest all the way back from when Moses was in command through all of Moses's battles, then through the handoff to Joshua and chronicles all the battles that Joshua has won up until this point. And in chapter 11, you see this really important verse. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So what is the author doing? I think the author is kind of zooming back a little bit, chronicling what all has happened from Moses to Joshua, and in some ways assessing Joshua. How has Joshua done? And I think we can say the assessment is quite good. But what is it? that makes Joshua such an effective leader. I think it's appropriate if the author of the book is stepping back and assessing Joshua that we do the same thing. What makes him effective? What makes him fruitful? That's what I want to do this morning in our passage. But here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to just say, here are five steps to being a better leader. I mean, I think you could go to Walmart and there's probably a book called exactly that, Five Steps to Being a Better Leader. And it would probably do a better job than I would of giving you five steps to being a better leader. But there is something that I think I can do that I don't think any other book in Walmart will do. I want to look at this passage and see why is it that Joshua is fruitful. And once we understand what makes Joshua fruitful, effective, and successful, we can then take some of those things and apply them to our own lives. And I think at, it, at his core, the reason that Joshua is so effective and so fruitful is because of who he foreshadows. You, you may know that, that Joshua's name in Hebrew is Yeshua. And that there is a better Yeshua down the road in scripture. And in English, we call him Jesus. In many ways, Joshua foreshadows Jesus's life. He models a Christ-like life. And that's what made Joshua successful. 
And incidentally, if you fast forward, Paul says something very similar to the Corinthian church. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So it seems both in Joshua's case and in Paul's case, there is this this pattern that as we follow Jesus Christ, as we imitate him, as we are conformed into his image, then we become more fruitful, more effective, and more successful at whatever it is that God has called us to do. So that's what I want to do this morning. I want to deviate slightly from what you had in having your bulletins. Um, I, I kind of just my mind started to change after the bulletin was printed, so it's a little bit different. Uh, I want to look at five ways that Joshua is Christ-like. And, and most of it comes from our passage. We might, might go back a little bit for a couple of them. I also want to give credit to a pastor named James Boyce from, from whom I stole two of these. <laughs> so I'm very thankful for that. I want him to get credit. But I want to look at five ways that Joshua is Christ-like in hopes that we can see them and strive for them and be Christ-like ourselves. So, what are those? First one, Joshua trusted in God's sovereignty. He trusted in God's sovereignty. And this is where chapter 11 starts off. So remember, Joshua is coming into Canaan from the east to the west, cutting straight through the heart of Canaan, dividing the north from the south. This is kind of Canaan's Mason-Dixon line here. And so he's, he's divided the north from the south so they can no longer collaborate. In chapter 10, he, he defeated all the kings of the south. And now in chapter 11, all the kings in the north, they're coming together to amass the largest army that Joshua has seen thus far. And we see in the text, not only is this army really large, they're technologically advanced. They have horses, they have chariots. And I think it would be really reasonable if Joshua said, hey guys, we, we have everything on the other side of the Jordan. We have the whole southern kingdom and we're in a position to negotiate a pretty killer peace treaty. I bet, I bet we could stop right now, live comfortably, and they would let us have everything that we've taken. But that's not the way that Joshua thinks because he knows there's more at play. He knows there's a sovereign God who has told him In 11.6, do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them, slain to Israel. So who is it that's doing the fighting here? I mean, Joshua's a part of it, but he knows there's a sovereign God going before him and fighting. This is the same God that parted the Red Sea, the same God that dried up the Jordan, the same God that had the walls of Jericho fall down. He knows there's a sovereign God who is all-knowing and able and willing to enter in and fight for his people. Makes me think of King David who said, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And I love what that knowledge does for Joshua. You know, God says, I'm gonna hand you over all these people slain. And Joshua, he doesn't just say, all right, I guess we don't need to do anything. (laughs) I guess we're good. We'll just wait for that to happen. It stirs Joshua to action. It stirs Israel. It motivates them. Because the knowledge that we have a big God, it should motivate us. It should stir us to action. You know, there are people out there who say, well, if God's sovereign and he's, if he's in charge of everything, then why do I need to pray? Why do, why do I need to care about evangelism or doing all the hard work that is needed to become Christ-like? 
And I want you to hear from me that those are the words of someone who has a very small God. A large God stirs us to action. And it also means that we are a real part of the plan. God has designed it, that our our actions and our strategies and our planning, they are a real part. And and you can see some of this really strategic military action on the part of Joshua in this text. Did you notice where it is that he defeats the forces of the northern kingdom? It's at this town called Merim. And Merim is strategic because it's 4,000 feet high and it's in a very hilly and rocky place. So that is in a place where chariots and horses don't work. And so he strategically maneuvers these kings knowing that it's God who's going to finally, at the end, win this battle. So Joshua pursues, he plans, he fights because he believes in a sovereign God. And in doing so, he is giving us a picture of Christ-likeness. Because no one has ever believed in a God as big, as sovereign as Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus came out of heaven, out of glory and honor to enter into pain and humility and shame. Handing over his life to be slain on our part, knowing he would receive an excruciating physical death. But not just that, knowing that he would be receiving the wrath of God on himself, in our place, trusting all the while that our God will use that for his glory and for our good. Joshua believed in a sovereign God. Jesus believed in the sovereign triune God, and so must we. And we're going to have different troubles in, in how we believe in a sovereign God. We're, we're designed differently. We are Uh, nurtured differently we are wounded differently so some of us it's going to naturally be hard to believe that there is a sovereign God and and that he really loves us and he's really going to work for us and others of us maybe if you're wired more like me your tendency is going to be shoot first aim later and forget that oh yeah I probably should have asked God for his guidance in that in that situation so we're going to go at it differently because we're all different but We need to know as a body from where, from whom our help comes and that it comes from a very big sovereign God. That's first. Second, Joshua was patient. Remember in chapter 10, we looked at it last week, he found out that the five kings of the southern army, they were hiding in a cave and he could have easily just gone and killed them, but he didn't. What did he do? He had the cave covered up and he wanted to hold them and keep them for a more strategic point later on after the battle was won. Do you realize that Joshua's campaign, as it's recorded in chapter, chapter 12, probably took about seven years? I think that's another way that he was very patient. I mean, it would have been very easy, I think, as you, as you wage war against town after town after town, to just think, well, that one's not that important. We don't want to fight again. We don't want to kill anymore. But that's not Joshua. It would be easy to take shortcuts and not to do everything that God wanted, which incidentally is what Israel does after Joshua's dead. If you read Judges chapter 1, you see that they did take shortcuts, but that's not Joshua. Joshua's patient, and in his patience, he models Christ to us. 
You ever think about how easy it would have been for Jesus to not be patient with us? I mean, there's so many different ways. He could have just eliminated us in Genesis chapter three and been done with us. That would have been easy. Or he could have come and just fixed everything in Genesis chapter four. I mean, you ever think, why didn't he just solve the problem in Genesis chapter four? Why did he wait so long to come? You know, why did he send Abraham and not just come? Why did he send Moses and not just come? Why did he send Joshua and David? And the answer is that he knew we needed categories to understand who Jesus is and what he would do. We needed categories like priest and high priest and temple and atonement and prophet and king. And so he's patient so that we can really understand who he is and what he does and what he's coming to accomplish. And we can wonder why has Jesus not come back 2,000 years And the answer is the same, because he's patient. In the words of Peter, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's waiting, he's patient, so that the fullness of his children come to him. That's Christ-like patience. And I was thinking this week, what does it mean to really be patient? Like at, at its core, what does patience mean? And I think it means having the end in mind in all of our decisions. Having the end in mind in the way that we manage our money. Having the end in mind, single people, in the way that you manage your singleness. I mean, it's so easy to want to take shortcuts to a relationship that you want. That's easy. But you would be missing out in the blessing of waiting. And maybe for some of you, singleness is the ultimate calling. And to take shortcuts and not be patient in that, you could miss some great blessings that God would have uniquely in that singleness for you. That you would have influence and be successful in an effectiveness and effective in the calling of a single life. Or, if you're like me and you have little kids in your home, what does it look like to have the end in mind in your parenting? We're in a really interesting shift at least with our older two children in parenting because we're we're not just addressing behavior anymore at least we shouldn't be <laughs> you know we there, there's more heart level stuff to get at and I'll be honest it's really easy just to punish the behavior and be done with it and it's so hard and we so often fail in taking the time and doing the hard work and the heavy lifting of really understanding what's what's going on at a heart level with our children it's really easy just to turn a tv on rather than getting on the floor and reading books or playing board games or chess. But I know at the end of the day, if I'm honest with myself, I'm going to look back and I'd wish I'd done those things. So in anything that we're doing, what does it look like to make that decision, to do that thing with the end in mind? That is Christ-like patience. And there aren't any shortcuts to any of it, especially our spiritual growth. Our spiritual growth is a bunch of small steps in the same direction. And incidentally, Jesus modeled this for us as well. We get to watch Jesus grow in his spiritual development over the course of his 30 plus years here. You know, we can think often that Jesus just hopped on the scene, boom, fully manned there, ready to go. But that's, that's not what Jesus did. Look how Luke says, how Luke writes it. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. 
Jesus didn't just pop onto the scene fully developed. He came here and he grew in the way that we should grow so that he can experience every trial that we experience, every temptation that we experienced, so that he can empathize with us in every way. That's Christ-like patience. A lot of small steps in the same direction. And I will say that this is something that I think my wife does really well. It was really sweet when we moved to Orlando and moved into our house. We have this little room, this little sunroom in the back of the house. And we never called it a sunroom. We never called it anything. And we noticed all of a sudden the children started calling it Mama's Bible Study. Because they saw every morning my wife get in the same chair and read the Bible. And we didn't need to even name the room. They just started calling it Mama's Bible Study. And that was convicting for me to watch. Because they weren't calling it Daddy's Bible Study. (laughs) I do all my real spiritual stuff in the office. No. Um, before they get up, that's what it is, before they get up. But it's a lot of small steps in the same direction. We have to be patient. We have to have the end in mind. Are we living out Christ-like patience? And then third, Joshua knew how to encourage his people. I think this is such an easy one to miss in, in this passage, but there's certainly no, no shortage of verses telling us that we need to be encouraging. So what is encouragement? Encouragement is coming alongside someone and giving them the courage that they need to do what they need to do. So in Joshua's case, it was coming alongside them and he was telling them, be bold, be courageous, do not fear. This land is what God is giving you. And I think to be an, an encourager, a good encourager, two things need to happen. First, you need to really know what, what it is that God wants you to do. And you need to really know the people that you're trying to encourage, if you're going to be a good encourager. Because you can't do much if you have no idea where they should go in their life. And it's not helpful if maybe you know what people should do, but you don't know the people. You don't know the way that they need to be encouraged. But Joshua knew both. He knew God. He knew his will for these people and he knew these people he lived among them and he knew how to encourage them that's what he did with the kings in the cave incidentally and isn't he painting a great picture of Jesus who was fully God he knew the will of God yet he could empathize with all of us because he came here he lived as one of us he dined as one of us he suffered as one of us he rejoiced as one of us that is Christ-like encouragement. And I love that Jesus doesn't come in and just crack the whip on his people. That's not biblical Christianity. Jesus comes in and he woos us and he calls us. When Angela and I were, were early married, we really weren't doing well in our marriage. We were overseas. She was struggling with depression. I had no categories to know how to walk with her well through depression. I would say really insensitive things like stop thinking that way or maybe you should just be reading your Bible more which was pushing her more and more into her dark hole and a wiser older man, he pulled me aside and, uh, and he said, Jim, here's the deal. There are two types of leaders in this world. The first type is going to get to the destination first but alone, without the army. He left them in the dust. The second type of leader is going to get to the destination a little bit later, but with the army. You're the first type of leader, and we need to make you the second type of leader. And what he was doing is he was, in, he was pushing me towards Christ-like encouragement. 
that we see in the book of Joshua. And this is one of the reasons that it's so important to come and worship together. You know, there's this great verse in Hebrews about the importance of coming together and worshiping. And for so many years, I was just totally botching it in the way that I read this verse and the way that I applied this verse. But here's this verse. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So for years, I would look at this verse and say, see, you need to go to church. Meet together, don't neglect it, go to church. But I was missing the whole point. It was so that we would be encouraged, so that we'd be stirred up to love each other. I mean, people who are able to make this kind of meeting a priority, it has an effect on their their lives and their marriages and their children because we're encouraged when we come and we worship. Biblical encouragement, it requires us to know God's word and to love God's people. And probably one of the hardest things an elder of a church ever has to do is to remove somebody from the membership of a church. This is a really drastic and rare case. So I've only been a part of this one time in my whole life. But we see in these seasons that sometimes encouragement is hard. It's not always fluffy. Because there are times we say, brother, sister, I love you. I love you. But because there is such a high degree of lack of repentance in your life. I can't affirm your profession of faith. So as this drastic final measure, we're removing you from the membership so that maybe, maybe we can encourage you back to Christ and rejoice with you and love you and hug you. So sometimes encouragement is fun and easy and sometimes it is hard. But if we are going to have a kingdom impact. If we're going to be influential, we're going to have to be encouraging and we're going to have to know what Christ-like encouragement is. Fourthly, he modeled obedience. All right, Joshua's not perfect, but <laughs> you, can just, you can read this story and feel like he's darn near close to it. I mean, he does have mistakes. He forgets to seek the Lord and mistakenly enters into a covenant of peace with the Gibeonites. But his mistakes, they didn't seem malicious, and he always learned from them. I mean, the Gibeonites were, because of that pact, Joshua was, he wanted to keep his word, and he was drawn into more wars because of it. Joshua obeyed when God told him to do seemingly crazy things, like walk to the Jordan River and expect it to dry up, or walk around this city of Jericho every day for seven days, and I'll somehow give, it, give the city over to you. Joshua trusted in this God. He obeyed this God over and over again, and in so, he is absolutely giving us a picture of Jesus Christ. You know, I wonder, I wish the Bible said more about what child sinless Jesus looked like. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it would be, it just, I don't have a category for a sinless little child. I don't have a category for sinless anybody, but especially a child. I hope in heaven I get to see baby Jesus growing up and being sinless. But the idea of child Jesus being sinless to me is a really huge part of the initial affirmation of his claims of sinlessness because his family saw him grow up 
and his family, even if there was a little season where some of them thought he was crazy, his family eventually all believed in him and followed him and supported his claims of sinlessness. I mean, they would have known if there were some tough teenage years. <laughs> I know, you just, just give him grace for this, but I can't, I can't, I can't buy him to sinlessness. But two of his brothers likely went on to pen two books of the New Testament. But why is it that Jesus is sinless is so important? Because there are churches out there who would kind of give on that. It, it was an, he's an encouragement, he's an example, but it's not necessary that he's absolutely sinless. And that's absolutely <laughs> false because our entire our entire faith hinges on his sinlessness you know if Jesus weren't a sinner and he went to the cross then he would have deserved it he would have deserved everything that we would have gotten on the cross but because he was sinless he was able to go to the cross and trade places with us and in so doing he removes the very thing that's keeping us out of the kingdom of God our sin that's the way that we come into the kingdom. So what do I mean by obedience? Because we can think that Jesus simply obeyed the moral law. And that would be true. He did obey the moral law, but he did a lot more. He obeyed the ceremonial laws that only the Jews were supposed to, that all the Jews were supposed to adhere to. And he even obeyed all the very specific commands to do and not to do things that were only for Jesus all the way to laying down his life for us. This is the kind of obedience that God is calling us into. Uh, there's a pastor, many of you know, Tim Keller, and he, he, he ministered for about 30 years in New York City, and I've heard him talk a number of times about just what it's like being around people who are at the pinnacle of success, the pinnacle of success in their field, the, the pinnacle of sports and theater and business and how uniformly he would hear from these people, yeah, I've gotten all this success, but it doesn't satisfy me. It doesn't satisfy me emotionally. It doesn't satisfy me spiritually. It doesn't satisfy me psychologically. And, and Tim Keller would go and tell his people and they would routinely just be baffled by this. I just don't understand how that level of success wouldn't satisfy somebody. And he said, you know, it's, it's like a bucket. What if, what if I told you that there was a bucket and if you poured the entire Atlantic Ocean into this bucket, it wouldn't even cover the bottom? We almost can't grasp that. But that's what's going on here because we have a spiritual bucket and all the success in the world won't even cover the bottom of that bucket because it's not designed to. But you know what will fill that bucket up? Obedience. I know that sounds weird. I saw some heads come up. Let me be clear. No amount of obedience is going to merit a salvation. That's why Jesus came. That's only Jesus can do that. But now that he has come, that he's removed our sin, that he's, he's given us a way into the kingdom of God, he has opened a door of obedience that we can walk through. And as we walk down this path of obedience, we enter more into the will of God and the presence of God. And that bucket fills up. And it makes sense, you know, that if obedience is ushering us closer and closer to the wisdom and the grace and the patience and the humility and the love of God, 
that we would then in turn have more of all of that for other people and that we would then in turn be more fruitful and effective and successful at whatever it is that God calls us to do. Joshua models that very well. And then lastly, Joshua was humble. He modeled humility. He was an extremely humble leader. And I think it's easy for, when I got to chapter 12, and they, they started the chronicling of events way back in Moses, I was kind of reminded, oh yeah, this did start with Moses. <laughs> and oh yeah, Joshua was second in command for like 40 years. And, and during that time, Joshua served, he was humble. He not only didn't desire Moses' authority, he defended at times Moses' authority until it was his turn to lead. And that humility continued. Humility is a really rare and precious thing in, in, our, in any culture, but I think especially our culture. So I want to take a second, and I just kind of want to walk us down a path of humility and, and see why is it that humility is so rare and so precious. Now, one pastor I know, he, he says that we all have this radical cosmic insecurity in our lives. That, that, that this is the bucket, this radical cosmic insecurity. And we don't naturally know how to fill it up. So one of the things that we do to cope with this radical cosmic insecurity is to try and feel like we're better than everyone else in some way, whatever it is. And do you know what that's called? Pride. That's how we get to pride. C.S. Lewis says in his his book, Mere Christianity, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. So the past few weeks, there's a, there's a pastor who some years back had uh, a significant moral failing, and so he was ushered out of that pastorate. And he's exhibiting some really bizarre behavior on social media. And it's, it's odd because he has over a half a million followers, but hardly anybody is liking or sharing or retweeting, and the behavior is getting more and more bizarre as this happens. And do you know what I think is happening I think ministry success was the thing that was filling his bucket. And now he doesn't have it. And this ocean of irrelevance that he's drowning in is tantamount to hell itself for him. Because there are lots of good things that we can look to to fill this bucket. But if it's not obedience to God and and ushering us into his presence, it's not going to satisfy us. We were made to live forever and not be forgotten. We were made to know at every time you are loved, you matter, and you have purpose. But we rebelled and we now die longing to hear those words. You are loved, you matter, and you have purpose. And we will look to anything to make us feel that way. And it it makes sense to me that in our culture, we would have 
we would be worse at this than most because I think we have more to look to to either feel better about other people's or drown ourselves away than anybody else ever has in the history of the world. We have cars and backyards and vacations and bank accounts and social media likes. But none of that is going to solve the problem. None of that is going to fill our radical cosmic insecurity. And that's why humility is so appealing when you see it. Real humility, why it draws somebody in. There's a pastor who had a lot of influence in my life. And he told me that when he walks into a room, and whether it's like a business meeting or a meal or whatever, he quickly scans the room and looks for the person who offers him the least. The person who's lowest on the social scale, the person who has the least money, whatever it is, and he goes and he sits next to that person. That's appealing. That's the kind of person you want to follow. That's the kind of person you trust, that they're going to put... Your good above their good, that's the kind of person that Joshua was. And absolutely, there's no one who has done this better than Jesus. No one who does this more than Jesus. And C.S. Lewis's famous words, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That's what Jesus did. Jesus who reigned in heaven, who left all the blessings, I have no idea what all that is, but all the blessings of reigning in heaven and came down here to suffer and die for our good. I can think of no greater humility. Paul says of Jesus, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So pride is our bent. And Jesus comes down and he turns every cultural value that we have upside down and he models humility. In Mark, Jesus says, but it shall not be so among you, the way of pride. But whoever would be great amongst you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the God we follow. A God of perfect humility, a God who will always look out for our interests. And the only place we can ever really be satisfied and know that you're loved, that you matter, and that you have purpose. I've loved looking at the life of Joshua and looking at all the ways that he really does model a Christ-like life. I'm convicted of ways that I can certainly get better And as we finish, we're going to take the Lord's Supper here in just a minute. I want all of us to think about ways that we can model Christ-likeness better. I believe that the Holy Spirit will prompt all of us, if we ask, in ways we can become more like Christ. And in God's providence, one of the ways that he's given us to be conformed more into his image is the sacrament of communion. He gives us this so that we can be nourished spiritually so that we can remember the bread broken, the body broken, the juice poured, the blood spilled, and that somehow supernaturally he would use that to draw us and to woo us and to conform us so that like Joshua, we will 
be successful and fruitful to what, in whatever it is that God's calling us to do. And I could imagine there are probably three groups here. If, uh, three groups of Christians. If you're a non-Christian, we would, we would certainly say that this is just something for Christians. Uh, we don't want to shame anybody, but this is just for Christians. But if you are a Christian, I could imagine that some of you, you're going to think about this question and think, I'm doing really well. I, I'm really encouraged. But I, I feel like I'm so much more Christ-like than I was maybe a year ago or five years ago. And I want you to enjoy that feeling. It's okay to acknowledge that things are going really well and this really will be a celebration for you. For some of you, you may feel like you've plateaued. And this is an opportunity for God to show you the next peak, that, that this road does go higher. And for some of you, you might feel like, I don't even know if I can take communion. I feel like I'm losing so much ground. And if that's you and you know that you're losing ground and you know that Jesus is your only hope, this is for you. Let me pray. God, we are so thankful. We are so thankful for all that you have given us in Christ Jesus, all the example that Joshua is of Christ-likeness. And God, we pray that you would you would woo us and you would call us and you would conform us into the image of Jesus so that we too can be effective wherever it is that you have us, that we can be fruitful, that we can be joyful and that we can honor you. We pray for this time as we celebrate communion that you would bless this time, that you would use it, this bread and this juice, the way that you have told us you use it. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.